I hope your Bibles are open to Mark chapter 14. We're going to be looking at that story there about the events that transpired at the house of Simon the leper. You know, another thing about this time of the year, at the end of February, things start to green and you start catching a hint of spring. Just when everything seems to make sense and the world starts seeming very practical, God brings us spring. And spring turns everything upside down. Winter killed everything off, but the flowers are returning where they drop dead. Leaves are budding where last fall they changed colors and fell to the ground. And fields that were brown are starting to turn green again. And the cycle is repeating itself. Things are not as predictable as we thought they might be. In his poem, A Color of the Sky, Tony Hoagland writes about a little dogwood tree that he says is losing its mind. And he says, overflowing with blossom foam, dropping snow-white petals to the ground in clouds, so nature's wastefulness seems quietly obscene. It's been doing that all week, making beauty and throwing it away and making more. It is God who's responsible for this change in the seasons, for the beautiful wastefulness of spring. And so it shouldn't be a surprise to us to find in it a reflection of his amazing, inexplicable grace. What is the grace of God? I like this quote by Henry Skugel. He said, God hath long contended with a stubborn world and thrown down many a blessing upon them. And when all his other gifts could not prevail, he at last made a gift of himself. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 6, Paul points out that Jesus was equal with God. But even though he was equal with God, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And being found, he said, in human form, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Who can explain that? Who can make any sense out of that? The gospel is so shocking and so surprising to us. And sometimes we miss out on that, the surprising nature of God's grace, because many of us have heard it our whole life. The gospel is very familiar to us. And we might say something like, well, of course it makes sense. It's a sacrifice. That's what Jesus did. He made a sacrifice. But a sacrifice isn't anything if it's not impractical. A sacrifice is giving everything up for, for someone else. And that's what God did for us. And if we don't see the impracticalities and the inefficiencies of that when we look at the gospel because we've heard it so much, we start to feel it and really sense it when we put ourselves in Christ's place, which is what we should be doing. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1 says... Be imitators of me, Paul's writing, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Our lives ought to be an imitation of Christ. Now, when we start living like Christ, then we start to see the impractical, inefficient nature of grace. We see how surprising it can really be. And this is the way many people felt at this house in Bethany in Mark chapter 14, the house of Simon the leper, when a woman 
This is Mary, the friend of Jesus. She came in and broke a flask of ointment, of pure nard, very expensive ointment, and anointed Jesus' head with oil. The guests were shocked. The critics criticized. And what we see is just Mary following the example that Christ set for her. And through the reactions of the critics and Christ's response, we see the otherworldly nature of the kingdom in which we've been called to serve. And so we're calling this lesson the inefficiency of the kingdom as we highlight its otherworldly and practical nature. And there are three things I want to bring to your attention through this text. The first is the kingdom is not economical. The first mistake the critics made in Mark chapter 14 was reducing Mary's actions to an economic equation of dollars and cents. Look at the objection that they made in verses 4 and 5. They ask, why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now the pure nard from which this ointment was made, was extracted from a root in a plant that could only be found in India, which was a very long ways away from the Middle East, and so it was very hard to get. Anything that was hard to get was very expensive. They said it was worth 300 denarii. That's a year's wages in those days, uh, in those estimates. Seems like a lot, maybe an exaggeration. But J.W. McGarvey did some research on this, examining non-biblical literature. And according to the estimates that he found of ointment made from nard in those days, that was a pretty accurate assessment. This, you would have had to work an entire year to buy the amount of ointment that Mary poured on the head of Jesus. It wasn't an economical decision at all that she made. She threw all of that out the window. And John's account in John chapter 12, he tells us that Judas Iscariot led the way in his criticism. But he said that Judas didn't really care about the poor, but he was the treasurer of the disciples, and he helped himself. He was a thief, and he helped himself to what was put into the money bag. Jesus answered the objection like this in verse 7. You always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, is Jesus saying he has something against the poor? No, he didn't say neglect the poor. He just said that you'll always have an opportunity to give to the poor, but you won't always have me. This is the same person, the same teacher who said in Luke 12, 33, sell your possessions and give to, your, give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and where, where no moth destroys. So Jesus wasn't neglecting the poor. He was making a point about Mary's service and saying, let's not take away from what she's doing by reducing it down to an equation of dollars and cents. Mary knew that the greatest, most noble blessings in life can't be bought with money. And it's possible to know that without the gospel. I mean, we can 
glean that from God's general revelation and seeing how the world around us works, we know that the greatest things can't be bought. They have to come in other ways. Everybody's familiar with uh, Sparta of Greece and how their warriors were tough and able. And a lot of it was due to the fact that they didn't consider money to be the most important thing. One of their teachers, Lysurgis, was asked how best an invasion of enemies could be warded off, and he answered, by remaining poor and not desiring to be greater the one than the other. He changed the whole theory of money in Sparta. First, by getting rid of all the gold and silver as an exchange. He left only iron. And in assigning value to iron, he assigned a very low value to a great weight of iron so that a whole storeroom of iron wouldn't amount to a whole lot of money. And in doing that, he did away with bribes and robberies and such things because who could be strong enough to steal enough money in Sparta to, to make any kind of value at all? He realized that in order to make Sparta great, he had to get it out of their mind that the most valuable thing is money. He did that without the gospel. It's common sense if you really step back and look at it. What do we really value? What really makes life worthwhile? It's not things that can be bought with money. And so Paul said in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there be any excellence, or if there be any praise, think about these things. Can you buy what is honorable? Can you buy truth? Can you pay a price for that which is lovely, which is virtuous, which is noble? The best things can't be bought with money. Only the lowest things in life can be reduced to dollars and cents. The story is told of a farmer who got tired of being a bachelor, and so he put an ad in the paper. I'm 38 years old, it said. Would like to marry a young woman of 30 who has a tractor. Please send picture of tractor. Uh, you know, when you get to that point, you've forgotten that only the lowest things can be bought with money. The best things in life can't. When life is nothing more than economics, it's hollow and unfulfilling. We overlook the greatest virtues and joys for material goods that lose their luster before we get them home. What's most important in life is more than that, deeper than that. What's most important in your life? Are you like Judas that reduces everything down to an equation of dollars and cents? Or are you like Mary who spared no expense to honor the Lord, knowing that life is not about precious ointment, but it's about precious relationships and the Savior who frees us from sin? The kingdom is not economical. Secondly, we learn from this that the kingdom is not practic practical. Jesus gave another response in verse 6. He said, leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? 
she has done a beautiful thing to me. Now, the word beautiful there comes from the Greek kalos. Kalos can mean ethically good or, as in this translation, beautiful. It's an expression of generous love. Mary did something that was beautiful. She did something that was good. She was acting out the prayer that you can find in Psalm 27, verse 4. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Jesus was making an argument here at Simon's house that it is proper and it is fitting in his kingdom to do things for the sake of beauty. That everything doesn't have to be reduced down to utility and function, but there is room in the kingdom for actions that are just simply beautiful in themselves. Now, what is that? Beauty is a very hard thing to define. Philosophers have been working on that for ages. Aquinas said this. He said, beauty is that which being seen pleases. Okay, so beauty pleases. I think we can all agree with that, but I think we all are dissatisfied with that definition. It doesn't really explain. It just says what beauty does. Why does it please? How do we evaluate it? How do we compare two things and say that one is more beautiful than the other. Well, there are two possible ways to do that. And one is to evaluate beauty objectively. And uh, philosophers like Aristotle said that beauty resides in what is being observed. It can be determined objectively. It's in the object that you're looking at. And so Aristotle and others would say beauty is evaluated by things like balance and symmetry and perfection and proportion, and if these criteria hold, well, then the object is beautiful. Well, I think everybody at Simon's house agreed that the ointment was something that was precious, that was beautiful. It had a, a pleasant scent to it, but they weren't evaluating the ointment. Everybody agreed the ointment was, was a, a valuable. 300 denarii, its value had a price tag on it. But that wasn't what the disagreement was over. The disagreement was over Mary's action. And they weren't evaluating that objectively. So that brings us to the second way that the philosophers have looked at beauty. And that is to think of it subjectively. That we bring our impression into an object to determine whether it is beautiful or not. You've heard beauty is in the eye of the beholder. That is the idea that beauty is determined subjectively. Philosophers like Immanuel Kant believed that aesthetic judgment is based on feelings, in particular the feeling of pleasure, which goes back to Aquinas. And he says pleasure is determined personally. Pleasure is something that is due to personal tastes. And judgments of pleasure have nothing to do with cognition or, or logic, and therefore they are subjective. And when you look at this story, you can see they're, they're looking at beauty subjectively. Judas found Mary's actions to be repulsive, repugnant, because he was arguing that that money would be better spent on the poor than on a perfume. On the other hand, Jesus found it to be something that was beautiful. And we know Jesus was right, but why was he right? 
Here's the answer. Jesus was right that this was a beautiful thing and not just a waste. Because in doing it, that action pointed to some transcendent truth. What she was doing was a signpost to something beyond that dinner, beyond this world. She was showing in that action that Jesus was worthy of all praise, that Jesus gives meaning to life, that without Jesus we have nothing. And that's why what she did was so beautiful, because there was a deeper meaning behind it. It wasn't just about the expense or the scent or the comfort it was about what lay behind the sacrifice she was making. We need beauty in our lives so that we can be led to the truth about God. If we don't need beauty, why does God spend so much time on it? Giving us spring and flowers and sunrises and sunsets and music. Why, why are all these things in our lives? Why did God create the stars in the sky? if beauty isn't useful to us at all. And if it's not useful to us, then we'd be better off to be like the animals. They don't care anything about art or music or literature. They're content to graze in the fields, walking around in their own filth. We'd be better off and more practical if we were like the animals. But God made beauty for a reason, so that we're, we can be drawn to Him, drawn to something deeper than what's on the surface. Some examples. From beauty we get the inspiration that prompts courageous action. From beauty we get emotions that break down discrimination and grudges and disagreements. We get the vision that lifts our eyes beyond ourselves and says, I can do something great. I can grow beyond myself. Beauty gives us the healing that makes us whole. Beauty gives us the love that keeps our goodness from becoming hard and cold. It gives us the motivation to worship our God, the courage to serve. The kingdom is not practical because beauty is involved. Now thirdly and lastly, notice this. We also learn that the kingdom is not driven by just what is required. Mary didn't do this because she had to do this. Now, what did she do? Go back and look at verse 3. She came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. John tells us that she anointed Jesus' feet. And so she anointed his head and she anointed his feet. She anointed him from head to toe. That's what she did. But why did she do it? I submit to you there are two reasons why she did it and neither of them are required she didn't have to do either of these things but first of all she did it to anoint jesus as the christ now maybe she had this in mind maybe the the guests at simon's house also had this in mind as well but in their culture and throughout the bible we can see this people anointed folks to special offices such as prophets and priests and kings you can think about how Samuel anointed Saul to be the first king of Israel, or how Samuel later went to the house of Jesse and found David and anointed him in a private ceremony. You can think about how Elijah anointed Elisha to be a successor in his place as prophet. 
Or you can think about the, uh, the, the psalm, Psalm 133, which describes the anointing of Aaron the priest. In Israel, they anointed prophets and priests and kings. And the New Testament shows us that ultimately all of those figures were types of Christ, that Christ is the ultimate prophet, priest, and king. He fulfilled all the prophecies. He was the Messiah, God's anointed one, the chosen one. And so first of all, I think she was doing this to anoint Christ as the Messiah, not just to make him comfortable at a dinner. But there was a second reason that is more overt in the text, and that was that she was anointing him to prepare his body for burial. It does appear that she had that idea in mind because she broke this alabaster flask. And customarily, that's what was done at burials. They would take a flask of, of ointment. They would anoint the body to prevent corruption, to keep it from smelling. And then they would break the flask to show that something has happened that can't be undone. It was a customary part of burial. And it's very clear that she had that in mind and even if she didn't, Jesus made it clear what she was doing. At the end of verse 7, he said, You'll always have the poor, but you won't always have me. And then in verse 8, he said, She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Do people have to go through customary burial rituals? Did Mary have to anoint Jesus as the king? Were these things required for her salvation? Absolutely not. Were the other people condemned at the dinner because she did it and they didn't? Absolutely not. She wasn't worried about what was required what was absolutely essential. She was going beyond that to do the most that she could. When Jesus says she has done what she could in verse 8, what he means is she has done everything that she can do. She's going as far as she possibly can. Now I want to be clear here. Obedience is absolutely essential. There are things that are required of us. In John chapter 3, verse 36, Jesus says, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Notice how believing and obeying are synonymous in that verse. And we know we're saved through faith. Faith involves obedience. And if you don't obey God, His wrath remains on you. The sin brought it. But the failure to obey will keep it on you, you see? In Hebrews chapter 5, verse 9 of Jesus, it says, Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. So obedience is a condition for salvation. I want to be very clear. There are requirements. There are commandments. We must obey, and we have to pay very close attention to those things. And do them. But the kingdom is not about minimum requirements. 
or just doing your duty. Think about it. What if God just did what was required? When it came to us, what if he only did what he had to do? Would we have any hope at all? We would be utterly lost because, friends, all God had to do was be good to us. All he had to do was create us and be himself. We turned our backs on him. He didn't turn his back on us. He did nothing wrong. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We turned our back on him. He didn't have to initiate the gospel by sending his son to die for us. And if he had just done the bare minimum, then we'd all be lost. But he went beyond that and gave his son to die for us so that we could be saved. He did more than what was required. Those who are satisfied with just doing their duty or obeying commands, they're good people. They come to church. They obey the, the plan of salvation. They uh, are moral people, upstanding people. They don't lie. They don't cheat. But God wants us to go beyond and not be satisfied with the minimum requirements. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, the love of Christ controls us. Why did Paul go all over the earth spreading the gospel in a time where transportation was so very difficult? Why did he break into Europe? Why did he sail those dangerous seas? And why did he continue to go after being imprisoned and beaten and, and stoned? And maligned because the love of Christ controlled him. He no longer regarded himself as his own. But he was so touched by the grace of God that he began behaving in the same impractical, unnecessary, not required way. By bringing the gospel to the whole world. And if we're going to accomplish God's mission. If we're going to be like him, we've got to think beyond just what the bare minimum is. We've got to think beyond just what the requirements are, and we've got to quit asking, what do I have to do? And instead, we need to be like Mary and say, what can I do? What is possible for me to do? And then what more can I do than that? It's not just about what is required. The kingdom is made up of people who do all that they can do. Spring is right around the corner. And with it, the reckless beauty that we get that reminds us of this kingdom we're a part of, full of beauty and impracticalities and inefficiencies, a kingdom that can't be bought, but can be entered by anyone who loves God and wants to do His will. Are you drawn by the beauty of the cross? You know, some are repulsed by the cross because of the humiliation and the physical torture there. But others see past it and see that the, the actions of Jesus are really something beautiful because they point to transcendent truth, which is that God loves you and that he's merciful and he's willing to forgive if we just put our faith in Christ and do what is right. Are you imitating Christ? Maybe you look at the gospel from outside and you see it from Christ's vantage point and, and you say, well, sacrifice makes a whole lot of sense. But then when he asks you to sacrifice, when he asks you to take up your cross and follow him, 
suddenly you see that it's, it's not very efficient. It's not very practical. It's not very useful from a worldly point of view. Are you imitating Christ? And are you loving God with sacrificial love? Are you going beyond the minimum requirements? Do you need to change? Do you need to give more? Do you need to do more? We're going to sing an invitation song. And we encourage you, if there's any changes you need to make, if you need to come and and make Christ your Savior today, don't delay. Come right now as we stand together and as we sing.